I can find no better words than the comments of John Calvin here on this text to form our introduction this morning. He says in commenting on verse 32, Seeing no words were sufficient to express the vehemency of the affections wherewith he was inflamed, he turneth himself unto prayer, and by little draweth toward an end to his speech. That encapsulates the sense and substance of our text this morning. The apostle wrapping up his discourse with these Ephesian elders, he uh, wraps it up with a prayer or a benediction. I don't know how to improve upon that because that indeed captures the tone. Paul had called these elders uh, from Ephesus to Miletus to meet with him. And one of the reasons why he met with them in such an urgent fashion and a place away from the church is because he believed this would be the last time that he would see them on earth. And so he brings this message of exhortation and instruction to the church. And then at the end of that message of exhortation and instruction, he leaves the church with what we might call a benediction or a prayer. Uh, certainly, the words that are contained here in verse 32 are designed to bring a message of hope and comfort to these elders, and I would argue beyond them, to the church of Ephesus as a whole. And that main message of comfort is simply this. God keeps His people in grace through His Word. God keeps His people in grace through His Word. And we capture that sense here in verse 32 as he says, I commend you to God and to the Word of His grace. That's what we want to think about here this morning. And before we dig into that, I want to set up the context here so we uh, have a sense of, of the backdrop to these concluding words of the Apostle Paul. And we do know they're concluding words here because of those first two words in verse 32. And now, it is a, it is a signal or a marker. The Apostle has pivoted away from his instructions and exhortations now to address the church with a word of substance and strength and assurance. So who is he talking to? And the first thing I'd point out here is the who. He is speaking to the elders of the church of Ephesus. And we can see that from verse 17. It says, from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called him the elders of the church. You can see that in verse 28. Where he says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I want to take a moment here to think about the exhortation to the elders because this is very important in every church. So he addresses the elders here and he says, first of all, to the elders, they're to guard themselves. And it's a command. It says, be on guard for yourselves. It's in the imperative mood. It's a command to elders to, first of all, watch themselves. And the reason is because for a congregation to be healthy and to be preserved and defended from attack, the elders and the pastors of the congregation have to first exercise a diligent overwatch of themselves. The most efficient way for Satan to destroy a church and to take down a church is to undermine the leadership of the church. You know this from the headlines. What makes the headlines? Does it ever make the headlines when a member of the church strays and stumbles and falls? No, what makes the headlines was pastors and elders and leaders of the church fall. That's when the world sits up and takes notice. 
And it uses that as a bludgeon to undermine the membership of the church to say that if the elders and the pastors can bring such disrepute upon Christ, then this whole church thing must be a big waste of your time. So Satan loves nothing more than to undermine the church by bringing the elders and the pastors into disrepute. And notice here, makes perfect sense as well. Not just because of the watching world, and not just because of the ways and, and devices of Satan, but it makes perfect sense because, ask yourself, what kind of person can you trust to watch over you? You see, if a man doesn't have a concern to exercise in and engage in self-watch, he'll have no concern for your watch. And in a moment, we're going to see that's precisely what the elders are called to a watchfulness over the congregation. But you see, the man who doesn't walk in the fear of the Lord won't call you to walk in the fear of the Lord. A man who doesn't love the blood of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins won't speak of it in such a way that you sit up and take note of the wonder and the joy of the blood of Christ and the forgiveness of sins. The person that doesn't walk in the joy and the gratitude of the gospel won't be able to help you there. And so it makes perfect sense that the apostle would first say to the elders, you watch yourselves. You have a, a lively faith. You love Jesus Christ. You make sure you're abounding in the fruit of the Spirit. You watch over yourself. You beat your own body into submission and make it your slave. And when you do that, elders, and when you have to come alongside the straying and the wounded and the hurting, they will be able to hear the authentic ring of truth in what you say. Because they're not asking you to do anything they haven't done themselves. The beginning point for the stabilizing and the blessing of the church is with the, the officers and the elders and the pastors. They must begin with their own self-watch. But that leads to another watch. As the Apostle Paul says, be on guard for yourselves and for all of the flock. This word flock here is a very picturesque way of speaking about the church as sheep. And one of the most endearing images in Scripture is the image of sheep, right? Uh, we love the image of sheep and shepherd. Going all the way back to Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I, I shall not want. He leads me into, still, into green pastures and by still waters. Our love of the image of sheep is embedded deep in the imagery of the Old Testament language and the idea of a leader being a shepherd and his people being a flock. And it's one of the more humbling images of Scripture because it describes you in unflattering terms. It, it describes me in unflattering terms as just a sheep, helpless and needy. And we love the language of sheep because Jesus does. He speaks of his people as his sheep. He says the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He says that he gathers his sheep into the sheepfold. He says that his sheep know him and they hear his voice and they follow him. And he gives them eternal life. 
And it's that same imagery of sheep that we have in view in John 10, 28, when Jesus makes that promise of the double clutch, that, that we're all so firmly in his hand that no one can pluck us out. And then he adds to that the supporting image of, of the hand of the Father underneath the, the, the hand of the Son. See, we're sheep. We are regarded as something that is precious in God's sight because paid for with, uh, with precious blood, but also because we are so desperately in need of being protected. And so he says here to the elders, watch over yourselves and watch over the whole flock. Elders, remind yourself this morning whom it is you serve and watch over the flock. Christ's sheep. He gives us a twofold basis of duty here as well. Why the elders are to engage in this vigorous self-watch and this self-government of the church and self-watch of the church. Because as you read on in verse 20, it says, 28, it says, The Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God. Notice the reason why elders have this position is because they have been appointed to it by the Spirit of God, overseer. We've already seen the title. It's those who give close watch and inspection. It literally means to examine, to look carefully at. And it's associated with the idea of, of guardian and protector. You see, the overseer is charged with the duty of careful reinforcement and protection. Notice the beautiful language here of the place of this eldership being carried out. It says, it's among which. It's among the people of God. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers, among which. See, it's speaking about the place in which the eldership takes place. It's very descriptive. It's not over. You would think the title overseer would would lead to language of the Holy Spirit placing you over. But no, it says that the, the place where this eldership is, is functioning and where it's carried out is not over, but it's, it's among. It's standing right beside the people of God. It's in worship for sure, but it's all those other times when people need help. A phone call, a visit, wise counsel, Fellowship around the table, having a meal together, being around them. The eldership is a deeply personal calling. That's what the, the Spirit of God inspires here in these words of Paul's. He's made, the Spirit has made you among which, among the people, an overseer. And the force and the strength and the authority of the office flows from this. It's a divine action. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers. This is one of the hardest things to come to terms with as an ordained officer in the church. We, we try to have a big ceremony. We, we try to have scripture readings and sermons and exhortations and charges and laying on of hands and ceremony. All of which is to say that whatever is going on here is deeply significant. But the one thing that you cannot see is the literal hand of Christ raising you up to office. 
But the fact of the matter is, Scripture says that when we ordain and install someone who's been properly called and gifted by Christ, it's not ultimately the church that's doing it. It's the Spirit of God. That means that this oversight comes with real divine authority. As long as it's done according to Scripture and according to Christ and according to the Word. It's Christ shepherding to you. Because the Holy Spirit has made these elders, overseers among you. The last thing I would note here is the weight of obligation. If you were to look at this in the original, you would notice that it really says, you, the Holy Spirit, has placed as overseers. You. I think I've shared this before. When I was first ordained to the ministry uh, very long ago, I remember that all the elders and pastors uh, from the Presbytery and then other pastors and elders who were affiliated with the Reformed Presbyterian Church were asked to come forward to lay hands on. And I got down on the ground and my knee and hands of, I think, about 35 to 40 men were laid upon my head. Believe me, when you experience that, you know what the apostle says here. You, the Holy Spirit, has placed as overseers. You don't see the working of the Holy Spirit, but you feel the weight. That's what he's trying to communicate here to those who have this duty of self-watch and overwatch. You, he has placed this authority upon your shoulders. And it should feel like a heavy weight. It's not light. And it's not light because the purpose of it is heavy. Notice it's to shepherd the church of God. See, that's what this is all about. Shepherding, protecting, ruling, caring, feeding, blessing, admonishing, disciplining. Oh, it has all the weight and authority of Christ with it. It's a great office. When we preached our series on officers and officers, the first thing that we said about this office of elder, it's an excellent office. What makes it excellent is the way Christ has forged and framed it. Appointed by Christ. Raised up by the Spirit called to shepherd the church of God. Second reason why the elders are to expend such energy and watching over themselves and the church is because of the value. Notice the last clause here in verse 28. The church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. I don't know if we can ever say enough about that. In fact, I'm pretty sure we can't. That word purchase is a, is a commercial term. It means to, to pull cash out of your wallet and to spend it upon something that you want to make it yours. You see, it speaks of the value of the blood of Christ. It speaks of the weightiness of what it what was involved in making us his people and his church. He bought it, he purchased it with his blood. It strikes me this morning watching all the images of these uh, soldiers 
in uh, Ukraine, some of them not even soldiers, really. They just went to the local police station. They were handed a gun. What will you lay down your life for? Five days ago, they weren't even dreaming of conflict or standing in a street corner with an AK-47 in hand and firing back to save their life. But imagine this morning, you think about what would you lay down your life for? You see, you only lay down your life for something that has meaning and value to you. Otherwise, you're a fool. And God would hold you accountable for it. We are called to sustain life and to support life and do whatever we can to preserve our own life and that of our neighbor. That's the law of God. You don't just lay down your life for trivial matters. And so when we read this language of Jesus Christ laying down his life and purchasing the church with his very own blood, it tells us of the value of the church. Remember how Jesus contrasts himself as the true shepherd and other true shepherds from the false shepherd. He says in John chapter 10, the false shepherds, when they see the wolf coming, they flee out of concern for their own life. It's not valuable to them. They're unconcerned about the danger of the sheep. They don't care what happens. Contrast that with the beautiful and soaring words of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 about Jesus. He for the joy set before him. For the joy set before him. That's you. That's the church. Endured the cross and despised its shame. Because of the love of Christ for you, he laid down his life and he purchased the church for himself. People of God, you can be assured this morning of the love of God in Christ for you. He endured the shame and the agony and the sufferings of the cross. So your, arch, your marching orders uh, are right here. And take them with all of the weight and authority of the inspired word of God. Watch yourselves. And watch the congregation. Because the spirit has made you overseers of what is precious to Christ. There's another thing here. Fear. And I don't cover this. I, I wondered whether I even should. I, I'm not saying this out of a desire to scare, speak as if, uh, act as if I'm speaking prophetically. I think there's a real application to it. So I'm going to cover verse 29, but I think it's always a real possibility in every generation of the church. I don't think the Apostle Paul is just speaking about something peculiar to Ephesus when he says in verse 29, I know after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. This is something that is a perennial threat to the church. Wolves will enter it. Paul says, I know. This is predictive prophecy. This is something that he knew would happen in Ephesus and did indeed happen in Ephesus within earshot of the Apostle Paul. That's why he left Timothy there some years later. But the image of the wolf is something to pay attention to because it's fear-inspiring. In antiquity, wolves were used in literature outside of the New Testament to speak about that which is fierce and cunning. 
the, women, the image of the wolf is used to describe satanic opposition. So when we hear about the warning of wolves, we're to think of that which is an opposition to Christ. And the thing the Apostle Paul says, they will creep in through stealth and craft, and they have a single aim, which is destruction. Notice the second thing about these wolves. They assault the truth. They assault the truth. Notice he says they, they speak perverse things. And that word per, perverse means perverted and twisted. Things that are bent out of shape. See, wolves take truth and they dilute it. They take what is right and they mix it with error. They take what is firm and solid and, and they undermine it. And they try to get you to believe that you shouldn't have certain confidence in it. So wolf behavior is about corrupting behavior. It's, it's behavior which is designed to make you doubt the word as it's been delivered to you 16 ounces to the pound and open your mind up to all kinds of possibilities about what the word could be or might be or make it to be what you want. And so they're dangerous because they distort and twist. And then finally we see they're dangerous because they cause division. It says they draw disciples after them. The aim of the wolf is to divide the church, not unite it. It is to draw people away from the truth and away from Christ to follow them. You see, at the end of the day, the wolf would make us a stooge. That's the thing to always remember about the wolf. The wolf, the wolf has no other desire than to make us the stooge, the fool that followed the false teacher. Because they crave and desire and long for the applause of men and the following of men. And so why is it relevant to us here this morning? Well, I highlight it not because I'm speaking or suggesting that I'm speaking prophetically or I'm concerned about a gathering threat here. The whole point in referencing this is to do what the Apostle Paul was aiming to do, which is to underscore the simple point that wolves are combated and fended off by clinging to truth. That's the whole point of it. You see, if the church continues to follow Christ and his truth, there's nothing to be concerned about. As long as you uphold the truth we confess and you put into, your pra put into practice in your life, Christ's shield of protection is upon this church. You have nothing to fear. If you follow Christ and you follow after his word, Christ will protect this congregation against all wolves and false doctrines and practices. As long as you commit to what you confess, sola scriptura. So that's the context behind this benediction now. The Apostle Paul had been addressing these elders, I would say, for quite some time. I doubt this was as short as we have the summation of it here in the Word. But at the end of it all, he knows he's bringing his message to a conclusion, and I've pointed out already, and now I commend you 
And I would say, just as we've highlighted the fact that he is indeed speaking to the elders of the church of Ephesus, that he is also speaking to the whole of the people of God. He's speaking to the church, and the reason we can see that is because the elders are representative of the church. To make promises to the elders of the church is to make promises to the church. And so everything that he has said here by way of spiritual duty, that forms the context. Uh, everything he has said here about uh, the fear concerning the possibility of ravenous wolves coming in to distort truth and seek division. Yes, that's part of the context. But in order to calm the minds of the people of God and to bring them some sense of confidence and hope and peace in the midst of such sobering realities. The apostle concludes with a commendation, and this is where I want to leave us today, because it's a powerful commendation of grace. We start with the very first word here. The apostle Paul says, I commend you to God. The word means to entrust to somebody, to make somebody else responsible for. You, you've heard this word before, but not precisely in this translation. When Jesus said in his very last word of the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's the same verb. Into my hands I commend my spirit. And so there you get a sense of the, of the flavor of the meaning of this word, which means to entrust to and to make responsible for. And the very verb form here, the Apostle Paul uses in connection with God, it means to commend to divine protection. And so the Apostle Paul, as he pivots away from instruction and exhortation, and now seeks to leave with a blessing upon the head of the people of God, he begins with the richest image of protection and faith and trust you can think of. He says, I entrust you, I commit you to God. And to the word of his grace. So we see here. God and the word of grace. Are the objects. To which they are. Commended. And though I do think. The better part of the argument. Is that they are held in conjunction. They are not to be sharply distinguished. They are to be in some way. Separated. Matthew Poole was right in his observation that God does indeed come first in this. And the aim of the apostle is to, is to assure the people of God they have been trusted to the care of the Almighty with all of the fears and anxieties and concerns set before them. The whole purpose of this is that you would draw strength. So I commend you to God. Reminds us very much of the language of 1 Peter 1.5. says, uh, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Context, Peter has spoken of how these saints have been caused to be born again by a living hope in 1 Peter 1.3. And as a result of that hope, he says, they have obtained an imperishable and undefiled inheritance reserved in heaven. See, that's the backdrop of, of the beautiful and soaring words of verse 5. He says, you have been caused to be regenerated. You stand in eternal life because of the sovereign hand of God. You possess the promises of the hope of eternal life because of the sovereignty of the grace of God. 
But what is the great fear of the believer? The great fear of the believer that's, is that somehow they might fall short of that. And so here the, pro, the apostle comes right after those words, those soaring words of grace and of eternal life and of, of an undefiled inheritance, highlights something. He highlights the protection of God. He says, you are kept by the power of God. The word here is a military term and refers to a soldier, armed soldier standing at his post, fighting off all of the enemies who are seeking to get past him. This is the precise language the Apostle Paul Peter uses here to assure you this morning that you are protected. And then as if that metaphor wasn't strong enough, he adds to it the word power. He says you are kept by the power of of God. By the almightiness and the sovereignty of divine power, you are kept. And the verb is passive, which means that it's happening to you. You're not active in it. You are the object of God's keeping and preservation and care. And he exerts nothing less than the fullness of divine sovereign power to keep you. That is everything that is packed in. Well, that's not everything. That's a slice of what's packed into this benediction. I commend you to God. You are being commended to be kept under the shadow of the wing of the Almighty to be preserved and guarded and protected by His power. This is for you. This is your assurance. You will not be snatched out of Christ's hand. But now add further to that. He says, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. That and joining together God and word of his grace tells us Paul is yoking these things together into a single concept. He's saying these things cannot be divided. God lets his grace flow through the word of God. So this word of grace is the gospel message. This word of grace is the saving message of, of grace in Jesus Christ. And John Calvin here lays it out so beautifully in terms of its meaning. He says it's very expedient for us to know how God will keep us. For because his majesty is hid from us, until we come into him by his word, we look to and fro being in doubt. I hope we appreciate the, the wonder of what Calvin is saying here. Is because he's saying, uh, for some of us, it's not going to be enough to be told that we are kept by the power of God. And it's precisely the reason that confronts us all. Faith is, is that which is uh, hoping in what's unseen. And so, I don't know, maybe you're not like me. But I find it hard to trust an invisible thing sometimes. So Calvin says, instead of calling us to put our faith in things that are entirely invisible and hid from us, he said, Calvin, in the direction, or Paul, in the direction of the Holy Spirit, does this wonderful thing for us. He holds up the protection of God in the mirror of the word of grace. 
And he says, don't keep looking all around you. Just go to the word of God and fix your eyes upon the word. Because when you do that, you find Christ because Christ is in the word. The New Testament tells us that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, and we look upon Jesus, we behold the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So when you turn to the scriptures to find assurance and comfort and consolation that you're being kept, all you need to do is look at the promises and look upon Christ. Paul is saying, there is your consolation that the hand of God, which you cannot feel, is underneath you and is grabbing you and is sustaining you and carrying you. So when you grow weary in faith, look to the word of God. And there you'll see the promise of the forgiveness of sins through grace. You'll receive the testimony that you have been justified by faith. You will hear the assurance that you have peace with God through Jesus Christ. You will stand reminded that you are the adopted sons and daughters of the living God. And so Paul would give you this assurance this morning. You have been commended to God and to his word of grace. And then he sweeps out the, the, the strength in that. As he continues on in verse 32, he not only commends them to God and his grace, but he shows it how it functions. And he says, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I want you to seize on that word able. It's power. That's what the word is in the original. It is power. And whether it looks back to God or to his word, I think it probably looks to the word because it's the nearest uh, referent. But the point of it all is to say that this word of grace has uh, uh, this kind of power in it to do something that is extraordinary. It's not natural. This word of grace has something that it can do that nothing else can do. And the thing that it can do is build you up. It's the old word edify that we use so much. It's an architectural term. It's the term that we probably know from Ephesians 2.20 where it says, having been built up on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. But it's, it's construction language. And it's applied to the spiritual life. And what the apostle Paul is saying here is that this word of grace, which you have been commended to, is a powerful world. It's so powerful. It can take you in your broken down condition and it can build you up in Christ. So it has this great power to make your life whole, to cause you to grow in knowledge, to increase in the grace of Jesus Christ, to abound in the fruit of the Spirit of God, to be built up in spiritual wisdom. You see, Paul says to you, as you wonder this morning, will you be kept? He would point you to the Word, because it's the means. It's the means that God uses to build. Can I quote one more time from Calvin? Because the point is so powerful. He says, the Lord will not leave his work unfinished. 
What is the meaning of this promise here that you are commended to the word of his grace which is able to build you up? What Calvin says here is that this is a promise from God that he will not leave his work unfinished in your life. I don't know about you, but that's a marvelous promise, isn't it? Because everywhere I look in my life, I see work that's unfinished. I see attitudes that need to be changed. I, I, I see things I'm failing to do. I see things that I'm supposed to do and I'm not doing. Everywhere I look, I, I find the evidence of spiritual weakness. Sin's brokenness is real and it stays with the believer. But, but the point here of the Apostle Paul saying to you this one, you're being commended to God and to His grace is that you can be assured that God will not leave the work that He has begun in your life unfinished. He will take His word and He will apply it to your life and He will not fail to make you who you are supposed to be in Jesus Christ. And so no matter how weak you feel, no matter how the experience of your trials and spiritual stumbles make you afraid, you remind yourself this morning, you have been commended to God and to his grace, which is able to build. The other thing that this word is able to do is to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. This inheritance is what we already know from other places, right? It's the mansion. Christ promised. It's the new heaven and the new earth. It's the renewed body. It's that uh, perfect place where every tear is wiped away. No more death, mourning, or crying. It's all passed away. It's among the saints. It means that you don't spend your heavenly eternal inheritance by yourself in isolation in an individual room. You're going to share it with everybody who's here. Who's in front of you, behind you, and beside you. You have been a redeemed community in Christ. And your inheritance is shared together. And the word of God, the word of God, is able to bestow that upon you as you walk in Jesus Christ. This is Paul's prayer for the church. And what he said then is true now. You've been commended to the care and the protection of God Almighty. And that commendation finds concrete expression in the word of grace, which is in the scriptures. It's made alive in the promises and the testimony about Jesus Christ. And then this commendation moves on to teach us this morning how this word of God is a blessing to us. It builds us and sanctifies us and continues to renew us in Christ and strengthens our faith in him. And then the benediction ends with the end. Your participation in the heavenly inheritance with the saints. And the way you ensure that you find yourself in that inheritance this morning, people of God, is continue to enjoy your commendation 
to God and His grace. Make sure you hold fast to the Word when you don't know what else to do. Turn to Scripture. When life makes no sense, turn to Scripture. When your heart is broken and you're disappointed, turn to Scripture. And when you do, you can be sure it won't fail to build you up and to give you an inheritance among the saints.